Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, William Galston of the Wall Street Journal and the Brookings Institution, and Damon Linker of The Week. We are delighted to welcome for our first segment, uh, the author of a new book, uh, and the book is called After Trump, uh, Reconstructing the Presidency. And uh, Jack Goldsmith is our guest. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, You are a uh, Harvard Law School professor uh, and uh, co-founder of the Lawfare blog. Um, Before we get into the meat of the book, and congratulations on this book. It's It's quite an impressive accomplishment. You go into a tremendous amount of history and uh and careful evaluation of all these possible reforms that the country can do uh, with a new president if we get one, if and when we get one. Um, But uh, why don't you tell us just a little bit about you and Bob Bauer, because uh, I guess you tend to be from different ideological points of view. Right. So my co-author on the book is Bob Bauer. He um, was Barack Obama's White House counsel. I served in the Justice Department in the Bush administration, and Bob and I don't agree on all things political, uh, probably more than we realize. We didn't talk politics too much in writing this book, but we both have a lot of experience with how the presidency runs and how the executive branch works, and about 18 months ago, we thought it would be useful for the country, basically, for us to sit down and try to think about what we've learned from the Trump presidency, but make it forward-looking in terms of what types of reforms are needed to the presidency after he's gone from the scene. And the aim was to try to reach consensus as much as we could, to have as many arguments as we could. We basically ended up agreeing on almost everything. We, We air one disagreement in the book, but on the whole, we're, I guess, kind of a political odd couple, but um, trying to reach a consensus on how to think about executive power. Right. Now, you devote a lot of time to um, the investigations that uh, that were launched against Trump, the um, the Mueller investigation and so forth. And you um, you say that uh, one of the reasons that they were so controversial is that the law was underdeveloped or unclear. Um, so, so let's, let's start with that. What, what do you think went wrong with the Mueller investigation and how do, how do you propose to fix it? So there are a lot of problems and many of them were identified in, uh, Michael Horowitz by Michael Horowitz, the inspector general of the department of justice, when he, in his four or five reports on both the investigation of the Hillary Clinton email matter and, uh, his investigation of the various elements of the FBI investigation of the Trump campaign. So I'll just list a few, and then I'll also talk about the ones that arose in the context of the Mueller investigation. So there's practically no guidance in the FBI on when and under what circumstances and under what legal theory a criminal investigation can be opened up against the president for obstruction of justice or a counterintelligence investigation can be opened up against the president. Uh, This is a fundamental matter. It's actually a very hard issue. Uh, and it was basically decided by the FBI without much input from the Justice Department. And that's just one example uh, where we think the lines of authority need to be clarified. That's a call in any administration. That's a call we think the attorney general should make, and we think that the law and the criteria for doing that should be enhanced. We think that things like the 60-day rule that uh, says that that's, that's a kind of soft norm in the Justice Department that says that uh, investigation information won't be announced with it, that affects a campaign won't be announced within 60 days of the campaign. And of course, there was some controversy about that with Director Comey's um, very late reopening of the investigation and discussion of that. There are a whole bunch of things, of problems in the way that the uh, FBI conducted investigations, both of the Republican side and the Democrat side, that we just think the law needs to be clarified and the, and the lines of accountability need to be clarified. With regard to Mueller, I'll just say briefly that um, there are a lot of things that that went wrong in that investigation. One, we think, 
is that just to mention one example is Mueller decided not to make a call at the end of the day on whether Trump was um, had committed a crime or hadn't committed a crime. And that, for a variety of reasons, skewed the investigation because it took away the authority of the attorney general to make his decisions. And it wasn't in accord with the regulations, but it turns out that a close look at the regulations suggests that there are a lot of points in there that need clarifying. So, again, we make a lot of fine-grained suggestions about that as well. Okay. Um, so one of the things that you say um, is that the um, Congress is is not the, the right um, – venue for investigating the executive branch. And I'm wondering why you think that. I mean, I'm looking now at page 177 and you say, absent an aggressive investigation, using the full array of evidence gathering techniques that only a prosecutor with full Justice Department backing possesses, uh, it would, would an investigation really be possible? But I'm wondering, you know, the, the Senate, as it turned out, the Senate Intelligence Committee did a really masterful job of uh, investigating all of these same matters. Um, why isn't it up to the uh, Congress to investigate the executive? Why, 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 why oh, I, don't, I don't think, I'm not sure why you think I think that. Oh. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, we, I mean, one of the premises of the book is that Congress is one of the operating assumptions because it's true is that Congress has, as a general matter, fallen down in exercising its various responsibilities, both for lawmaking and oversight. And that's one of the many reasons we have so many problems with presidential power. But uh, we have no objection at all to congressional investigations of the presidency. In fact, one of our reforms is designed to uh, help Congress enforce its subpoenas by fast-tracking the legal issues related to them. Right. So, I was just going to ask you about that. Because one of the things that happened during the Trump years is that uh, they just flagrantly ignored uh, congressional subpoenas sort of on a, on a blanket basis. And uh, you do have a reform that would fix that, right? Well, I'm not sure it would fix it. It would help to deal with it. I mean, there's a long tradition of executive branches uh, ignoring congressional subpoenas. And the Trump administration was certainly more aggressive rhetorically and the consequences at least and maybe in fact and the consequences were more consequential I, I agree with that the main reform is is basically to fast track the subpoena power so that the president can't run out the clock by challenging the subpoena in court and have quicker judicial resolutions mm -hmm. of these con of these separation of powers disputes but as we point out that's not necessarily a winning strategy for congress it might be the case that it actually especially before the current supreme court loses in these separation of powers battles. Congress has lots of other tools to deploy, and it it's basically gotten out of the habit of deploying them. But that is one reform that we propose. So one of the things that you identify um, has, you know, some of the some of the problems that you're talking about in this book are kind of of long standing or have built up over decades. But some of them are specific to the Trump era, and one of those is his financial conflicts of interest. Um, and uh, you have some incredible little details in here, like, I love this one. Trump visited his golf properties at least 245 times. Actually, the, there's a new report out by, um, by Crew, uh, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. So they have the new data that since you, the publication of your book, it's now up to 300 visits. Right. Um, I think elsewhere in the book, you say it's one out of every three days in office he has spent at one of his properties. Um, and of course, with all of his security detail and his other, you know, factotums in tow, all spending money at Trump properties. Right. Um, so, um, uh, there's been a tremendous mixing of personal and uh, and uh, official duties. He's gotten all kinds of. This is something that shouldn't be that hard to fix, right? Well, it shouldn't be hard to fix in the sense, in the following sense. Um, this is behavior that defies norms that presidents of both parties have adhered to, going back to Watergate, and uh, that even Trump, before he began to defy them, purported to. He admitted that they that there was a norm against mixing his business interests with his public interests, 
We do think that this is one of the easiest to fix in terms of politically easiest. Uh, the Democrats are already talking about ways to do it, and there's no reason that at least some Republicans should be against this once Trump is not in office. How to do it? There are different ways to do it. Um, we basically propose that the president has to, the president be barred from any involvement in any of his businesses, formal or informal, and that he have to he has to warrant that. Uh, to the Congress on pain of criminal penalty. And we also suggest that basically there has to be a regular public accounting of any of the businesses and business interests that a president owns that has to be regularized and made public. Um, now, those things wouldn't necessarily have prevented Trump from going to his golf courses. And it's very hard, I think, in, to do that. And we didn't have a direct uh, regulation on that. But basically, we try to take what has been a norm and turn it into a law and give it some at least partially, criminal enforcement teeth. Right. And you also did the same with revealing tax returns. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, which in theory should also be easy politically. Yes. Um, one would think. Okay. Now, um, the the other, there, there's one part of this that, that did confuse me, and maybe I was skimming too fast, but you did talk about reforms to the pardon power. So the pardon power... Um, the, the reasons comes up, obviously, is that not only has Trump used it in a promiscuous way to pay off friends and uh, so forth, but he has also threatened to self-pardon. Um, and um, so you, you talk about legislation to limit the pardon power, but can you explain that to me? Because this is a power that's in the Constitution and you explicitly say you're not talking about amending the Constitution. So explain how that would be how that would be possible. Sure. So the the, the president's pardon power is, as you say, expressly mentioned in Article Two, and it's one of the broadest powers that a president possesses. And the Supreme Court has spoken of it in very broad terms. But it's not true that it's a limitless power. And we believe that consistent with prior cases. And let me say one more thing before I talk about the reforms. Most of the abuses that Trump has committed aren't regulable. I mean, you're allowed to, the president can, under current law, issue pardons for political reasons and for political opportunities. And Trump has done that. And I suspect he'll do that a lot more if he loses the election during the, the transition. So we're not suggesting that the pardon power can be fundamentally transformed by statute. We do think that there are two important abusive applications of the pardon power where Congress can make a difference. One is, and this has come up during the Trump presidency, the president's use of the pardon power as part of a bribe or obstruction of justice in connection with an ongoing case. And as we explain in the book, we think it's pretty clear that uh, Congress couldn't stop the president, say, from pardoning someone in exchange for that person not testifying against the president in court. The president would probably couldn't directly stop the president from doing that. But Congress could make that act, that bribe or that obstruction of justice, a separate crime. And we don't believe that we don't believe that would be prohibited by the pardon power. The other big question is whether the president can self-pardon. This is an issue that the Constitution does not expressly address and that scholars left and right disagree about on a whole range of across a whole range. Yes, no or maybe. And our only point there is, is that Congress has a constitutional role. Congress has a role in in stating what its view of the Constitution is, and that Congress can expressly ban a self-pardon, that by itself wouldn't resolve the constitutional issue, but it might inform a, um, a the judges or the Supreme Court's view of the matter when it came before it. So those are two basic abuses that Trump has threatened or has threatened to do that we think can be addressed by statute. Okay. Um, can you just talk for a minute about this Durham investigation? Because uh, you address it in the book. It it could drop any day now, violating that sixty day rule before an election or whatever that was. Um, yeah. Um, and and you have some you have some pretty tough things to say about the way Bill Barr has handled this. Apparently, he has violated all kinds of um, norms and and rules of the Justice Department in the way he has conducted this thing and uh, spoken about it. Sure. Uh, on this question, maybe more than any other, this may be a surprise, but this is an area that Barr has been most disappointing to me. Um, so the Durham investigation is basically an investigation by a Connecticut U.S. attorney with a reputation for bipartisan credibility. He was 
also had a, uh, did investigations for the Holder Justice Department. Um, it's an investigation by him into the origins and operation of the investigation in 2016 and beyond of the Trump campaign. So it's basically an investigation of the investigators. I think, and we say in the book, that in theory, this is a legitimate thing for the Department of Justice to do, and there actually are precedents for prosecutors doing it. But the way it's been conducted, we think it's proven to be terrible, and mainly because of two reasons. One, Durham has, with one exception, kept his mouth shut, but the president hasn't kept his mouth shut, and he's continued to comment on the investigation and make conclusory judgments about what should happen. And perhaps worse, because we're used to the president doing that, Bill Barr, the attorney general, has done the same thing. He's had a running commentary about the investigation. He basically said he thinks that wrongdoing has been done. The only question is whether there's a prosecutable crime, which he's implied there might be. And these, this ongoing commentary about the investigation, which Barr himself has complained about in other circumstances, is a clear violation of uh, department norms that we actually, one of our proposals is, is that this be made clearer and be made more clearly applicable to the attorney general. In any event, we don't think that the Durham's of the world should be doing investigations like this. We think it's adequate for an inspector general to be making, and it would be more independent and more credible if an inspector general did this. But that's a situation where we are. Barr is acting within his authority in conducting this investigation. And it sounds like they are going to drop something before the election. Uh, you go into many, many uh, more issues in the book, uh, you know, whether uh, presidents should investigate and or prosecute ex-presidents. Uh, you talk about uh, the authority over nuclear weapons, war powers, all kinds of very pressing matters. And, uh, and it's all done, uh, I think with great, um, judiciousness. So, um, so thank you for, for putting this together. I would like to close with a sort of, um, more global question about how much of our, um, current sort of mania for law breaking and, uh, and, and contempt for law and contempt for norms and traditions, um, is is a matter of legal fixes and how much requires a real cultural wake up call and a, you know just a change in our uh, in our public you know conversation our discourse uh, and and in general in the in the spirit of of uh, of our our common conversation basically unfortunately. I think you're right that I mean the book is premised on the idea in part that legal fixes can institute norm changes and I believe that's true we've seen it done that some of the law inspired norms that were operating during the Trump presidency worked and it worked for a long time after the 1950s and we think that it can make a difference if there's a period in which some of these reforms are implemented but as we say a couple of places in the book and as you imply ultimately um there's no legal fix to the basic disinterest in norms and short-term interest in hard power grabs and non-interest in cooperation across the aisle and basically breakdown in uh, the charity with which uh, politicians and people in Washington deal with one another. There's no quick legal fix to that. I mean, the next administration can do things, I think, to change the tone. I hope that they do. But basically, um, there's no legal fix for bringing the country together. And I unfortunately think that it's going to continue um, fragmenting for a while. Well, at least your cooperation with Bob Bauer on this project should be a model uh, that will inspire others, I hope. <laughs> well, I hope so too, but yeah. not confident. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. Take care. All right. Um, this um, this week, not unlike others, uh, has it's more than its share of news, too much news almost to absorb and cope with. And in fact, really, it's getting to the point where I'm getting a little bit overwhelmed and even a little depressed uh, about with worry about what's going to happen in uh, in a few weeks. But um, in the meantime, we have had the death of. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg last Friday night, um, and uh, we are now in the midst of the debate about what 
to do about that. Uh, there was a brief moment where a bunch of um, conservative-leaning uh, intellectuals, including our own Adam White at the Bulwark, proposed a compromise solution to this dilemma where Trump would name an appointee, uh, the, uh, there would be hearings, uh, but no vote uh, on the understanding that the vote would be postponed until after the election, at which time, if Trump won, they would proceed to confirm the nominee. And if Trump lost, um, the uh, the Democrats would get their shot. But the the exchange would be that, the, that in exchange for postponing the confirmation, Democrats would in turn agree not to pack the court if they win and not to add new states to the union or some such. But anyway, that's all moot now, uh, as we say in the law, because... Um, because Mitt Romney came out in favor of uh, confirming a justice before the election. And so that means the that McConnell has enough votes to do it. So let us begin with the possible um, different interests at work here. Um, uh, actually, let's begin with, with ancient grievances. grievances. Um, Linda, let's talk about how long we've had these, uh, I don't know where you stood, by the way. I mean, I was, well, um, I was in favor of, of postponing this because the Republicans had made such a point of withholding action on Merrick Garland that, and it strikes me that to push forward now is really to hit the accelerator on polarization at a time when that's not what we need. But I don't even well, know what your view well, all is. All right. I'm happy to tell you my view. And it is so much a pleasure to do so because I often think that you and I share a brain and this <laughs> proves we don't. We don't. All right. <laughs> so um, I'm absolutely consistent uh, with the position that I took in 2016, which was that Barack Obama had the right to his own nominee, even during an election year. I believe uh, similarly that so does Donald Trump. And the fact that it is very close to the election, I don't think is disqualifying. Also, you know, Mona, I'm a conservative. Uh, I'm probably going to like Donald Trump's appointee much better than I would like any of um Joe Biden's nominees. And so, uh, you know, just in terms of my own judicial philosophy, I'm going to be much more comfortable uh, with the Trump pick. And thankfully, it's not really a Trump pick. We keep talking as if the president has sat down and studied the legal writings and the histories of all of these nominees. Uh, this is really a, a list that was put together by the Federalist Society. Um, and some others within the administration. And uh, I think the names that have been floated, uh, certainly Amy Coney Bryant, uh, Barrett, have um, been out there for a while. I think she'd make a very good justice. So um, so I, I beg to differ with you on, on withholding this nomination. Okay. Now, Damon, I, one could say, you know, that of course, you know, it's been well known during this administration that Trump has accepted the recommendations of the Federalist Society more or less wholesale. Um, but I'm not sure that in this particular case, there might not be other considerations weighing in. For example, um, Lagoa um, is a, um, a Hispanic from, uh, with, of Cuban ancestry who's from Florida. Uh, Florida is very tight right now, could inspire turnout among Cuban Americans. I don't know. That could play a role in his uh, choice. I suppose so. I mean, I, this might be one of the first times I, I've ever heard uh, a Supreme Court choice talked about in, in that kind of <laughs> term. Like, we barely believe that who you pick for a vice president makes any difference anymore, let alone like he picks, yeah. he picks a Supreme Court justice who could sit on the court for, for you know, as one of nine for 40 years. 
so that he can win Florida. That would be a truly bizarre uh, way to choose uh, a justice. But, you know, uh, there have been crazier things in this this presidency. So I suppose he could. I think if you do want to look at this through the lens of kind of political expediency, there is still plenty on the other side of the ledger for uh, for uh, Amy Coney Barrett because she is a kind of a kind of crossover evangelical Catholic because she's a kind of um, a kind of uh, a more uh, Pentecostal informed Catholic. Uh, very uh, in favor of uh, a, a certain brand of Catholicism that that tends to appeal more to evangelicals. She's very conservative, and uh, so will definitely make the religious right extremely happy. Um, I mean, every pro-lifer will be uh, dancing a jig uh, at the idea of her serving on the court. So he he definitely uh, kind of shores up various pl- uh, flanks, no matter which direction he goes on this. But where do you stand on the um, the prudence argument and and the, the the debate that I described a minute ago, where some even some conservatives were saying that it might not be a good idea to push this thing through under these conditions? Well, the honest truth is that I almost feel like I'm not entitled to a position, which is a weird thing for a pundit to say, but (laughs) but I'm so not on anyone's team on this that it feels weird even to, to ask my opinion. I mean, I think that I was appalled by what McConnell pulled uh, back in 2016 with Obama's uh, nominee because there, there didn't, I wasn't ever persuaded by his, what struck me as a very ad hoc uh, argument that if a justice dies in February, uh, you can't and you you can't appoint someone in, until there's been an election. I mean that's that's just a cockamamie, totally ad hoc principle that he threw out there. What he's saying now and what Trump is saying now, I think actually does make a kind of sense. The the, the claim of like pure power politics that well. Four years ago, uh, you know, four years ago, uh, we we the Republicans held the Senate and we didn't want to let Scalia's seat go to a liberal, even a moderate one like Merrick Garland. So we said no. Now we have the votes and we have a Republican president and we don't care if it's 30 minutes before the start of voting on Election Day. We're still going to approve the person. That, uh, you know, that I at least can understand as as like not even attempting to put it, uh, couch it in broader, high minded terms. But by the same token, as someone on the center left, I, I you know, I'm, I'm kind of disgusted that we're in this situation at all. Uh, so it's just a little strange for me to, to think about uh, the, the prudential call because it's so unthinkable for me that either Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump would ever do such a thing and limit uh, their attempt to shape the court because of prudence. They simply don't function that way. Well, I would just have to say that regarding... Um McConnell's position and the Republican Party's position in general on this is that is that what you say is not quite right. They're not saying this is pure power politics. They're saying there's still a principle involved, uh, and they're they're trying to resuscitate this idea that there was ever a principle, and that they're not being inconsistent and hypocrites. They're saying, oh no, the the this this is this we can distinguish the two cases, right? Last time we said no, you can't have a. Um, you can't have a, a hearing and a, and a vote in a presidential election year because the people need a voice. Um, but this is different because now the presidency and the and the Senate are held by the same party. So that's different. But how does that change the principle? It doesn't change the principle. And of course, by the way, the Democrats are also switching positions. They were saying at the time the president deserves to have his nominee uh, take take office in the case of Merrick Garland. And now they're saying the opposite, but but of course, of course, if that were actually, if they were, if, I mean, I agree if the Democrats, if there had been no Merrick Garland thing four years ago, this would be a kind of no brainer situation because of course, if the situation were reversed and you had a democratic president and a democratic Senate and someone who is a conservative died a month or two out from the election, the Democrats would absolutely 
have appointed that person to the court. And there wouldn't even be a debate about it. I think it would be very obvious. Um, but it's because it's in the wake of what I think, again, was the more appalling case yeah. in 2016 the democrats are now like you know pulling their hair out uh in a, for understandable reasons right so so bill um do you get the sense that this is really going to be a radicalizing thing for democrats that they are now going to think well you know even though bill uh, um joe biden was opposed to the idea of ending the filibuster opposed to the idea of uh of packing the court that, that there might be pressure now from his own party to move on those kinds of things. Uh, that's absolutely right, Mona. And that's, that's what I wrote in my wall street column, Wall Street journal column for this week, uh, which earned me an unprecedented amount of abuse. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, on my own came up, with a proposal identical to Adam White's. Yeah. Uh, and I was talking to uh, Adam's boss at AEI, Yuval Levin, uh-huh. uh, who told me about this. So of course, I cited, I cited Adam's piece in, in mine. I continue to believe uh, that some compromise along those lines, not for legal reasons, but for political reasons, would have been much better for the country than what we're ending up with. Uh, there is no question about the fact uh, that this is ratch- going to ratchet up the pressure on Biden uh, in advance of the election to endorse a court expanding strategy, and after the election, if he becomes president, uh, to to move forward on that. I think he will resist that pressure as long as he can, uh, but it's going to be much harder for him uh, than if none of this had ever happened. Yeah, and uh, there is this this pressure, you know, this sense of tit for tat, and you did this, and uh, you know, and therefore we must respond. And where does that end? It ends with the Supreme Court being part of a ratchet where, you know, the Democrats get in power and they add justices and then the Republicans regain power and they add justices. And then pretty soon you've got a Supreme Court of 100 members and it has zero credibility because everybody knows it's just a ping pong. Um, By the way. And and that's a terrible idea. I I mean, the idea. But but there's a different solution. There's a a more obvious solution to this. And actually, it would play into, I think, what you and Bill and and Damon have been talking about in terms of uh, more political comedy on this. And ironically, it is the filibuster. I mean, one of the reasons that we didn't have quite as ideologically um, fixated nominees for these posts is that you had to have some reaching across the line. You had to, you know, you had to make sure that at least some uh, of people of the opposite party approved of your nominees because the nominees could in fact be filibustered. And I'm sorry, it was the Democrats who got rid of the filibuster. And there is a reason for the filibuster to try to cool these kinds of, of, um, you know, very, very partisan moves at any time. And so just, just a, just a note, um, it was the Democrats who removed the filibuster for lower court right. judges and then the Republicans right. removed it for Supreme court. Uh, once you, once you yeah. did it for the lower court, yeah. obviously, I mean, it made yeah. no sense to not have it for the Supreme court. The, but well, the, and I don't know, I'm not even sure it would have been removed for Supreme court justices had it not been for the very, uh, unwise effort by Democrats to filibuster Gorsuch, right? Which right. Uh, was a mistake, right? And so, and, it, so at any rate, that's one of the ways, Bona, that you could make this uh, a more civil, less uh, you know blatantly political atmosphere, because you could ensure that you know if somebody did something wrong at the end of a, an administration if they put up you know somebody who was unfit or somebody who was radical uh, that the other side would get a chance to have some say well I beg to differ okay uh, uh, this is part of a larger argument uh, 
Linda's just articulated the classic argument in, fellow, in favor of the filibuster. Unfortunately, it's been a long time since it's actually functioned that way. It has functioned more as a blockade than as a compromise promoter. And that's true for both legislation and appointments. Uh, and you know, does that mean I'm necessarily in favor of getting rid of it? Uh, not necessarily, but we ought to face facts. And a fact is that in these polarized times, not even the filibuster has created pressure for compromise strong enough to overcome the underlying forces of polarization. That's just the way it is. And it's one of the many costly consequences of this, of this drift into Hatfield and McCoy politics. Um, can I just point out that uh, though he has taken a lot of justified ridicule and abuse this week, um, Lindsey Graham, that is, um, for having said on tape in 2018, you know, you know, hold me to this. You know, we will not uh, confirm a justice if they come up in the last year of Trump's term and so on. OK, fine. So he deserves all that. But he he it should be noted, along with other Republicans, um, voted in favor of uh, Elena Kagan, uh, in favor of Sonia Sotomayor. Um, there were Republicans who were joining Democrats in voting for their nominees uh, much later in the process than the reverse. I'll just point that out. Which raises interesting questions about the whole claim that it was the it was the Bork controversy that made him made it impossible to preserve comedy in court nominations. Because well, that's, that's years true. and years after the Bork nomination. Uh, relatively, relatively uncontroversial nominations were going through. Scalia's was relatively uncontroversial. Well, that preceded Bork. Fair enough, but yeah. uh, uh, yeah. but uh, but yes, the, the, well, Clarence Thomas got eleven Democratic votes, uh, which is interesting. He joined forty-one Republicans. The uh, Senate was controlled by Democrats when Thomas was uh, was confirmed. Uh, so, so, but there were political complications there too. But doesn't that lend some credibility uh, to the idea that uh, whatever whatever the origins of the current impasse on the judiciary may be, that simply tracing it to the Bork controversy is an analytical mistake? Well, I mean, I look. I mean, these things are hard to hard to trace, and one of the I would argue that that long after the Bork thing, we did see um, the kind of cynical effort by the Democrats. And, you know, it's funny, I'm going after the Democrats here, and I'm actually one of the people who wanted to give them something this week. But look, um, uh, they they blocked the the elevation of Miguel Estrada to the Second Circuit, uh, to the D.C. Circuit, rather, um, uh, in 2007, uh, explicitly because he was a talented Hispanic, and they were worried that that uh, Bush was grooming him for the Supreme Court. He'll I mean, be and, charged. And that kind of thing, you know, that really engendered a lot of yeah. bitter feelings. Well, we're and acting so. We're right. acting, yeah. Mona. Yeah. We're acting a little bit here, like uh, politics uh, never plays a role in selection for the Supreme Court, or and shouldn't. When well, in fact, of course, it does. I mean, that is no. one of the consequences of elections. Well, that's true. Um, all right. Look, um, let's do just a word or two on um, what the possible look. When this news first broke, I thought, I don't know. I thought this would be. Um, but well, worried about what it would do to the sort of the, the, the polarization that's already so white hot in this country. But also, I suspected at first that it would be a help to Trump's reelection, just as Kavanaugh arguably helped him keep a couple Senate seats in 2018. But I've come to not be so sure about that now. Damon, do you have any views about that? Um, I tend to assume that these court fights do help Republicans more than Democrats. Now, you wouldn't know that by hanging out on Twitter and looking at liberal journalists go absolutely apoplectic this week about everything. But, um, you know, there is a reason why 
uh, even with the Merrick Garland thing in the background, that that uh, the court was barely mentioned at the Dem- the DNC in 2016. Hillary Clinton barely mentioned it, if she even mentioned it in the three debates. It was that the court didn't come up in the entire DNC this year. Um, there, there is polling that shows that the kind of rank and file Democrats do not rank the court high on lists of things that matter very much. And it, again, that is not true among kind of progressive, urban, highly educated elites in the Democratic Party, kind of the progressive uh, vanguard of the party, opinion columnists, journalists, people in the media. For them, they understand the extremely high stakes about these questions. But um, in, out, in the, out in the field, um, I, I'm not convinced that a lot of Democrats pay much attention to these battles. Now, maybe that'll be different given that this is happening in the crucible of the run-up to the election. So it could get kind of sucked up into the whole, uh, uh, the, the whole pre-election drama. And in that case, maybe this will be different. But if it is, it, it'll, be, um, it'll be an outlier from the norm. Well, for what it's worth, a poll did show that people felt that they had more confidence in Biden to pick the next Supreme Court justice than Trump, but uh, and by a fairly substantial margin. Bill, did you want to add to that? I did, and I'm sorry to keep on footnoting myself, but uh, in my column this week for the Wall Street Journal, I rounded up a lot of very recent survey evidence suggesting that the rank and file Democrats, not just progressives on the coasts have responded very strongly uh, to the Supreme Court controversy, that significantly more Democrats now rate it higher up as an issue than they did before the controversy began, uh, and that more Democrats than Republicans uh, say that it will make a difference in their vote. Uh, So take that for what it's worth, but it's not clear to me that when it comes to filling Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat, that the past is necessarily prologue. She has personalized it uh, in a yeah. way that an, you know, a more anonymous uh, justice would not have. Right. And there's one more wild card, which is the court is scheduled to hear uh, argument about the Affordable Care Act, November 9th. Um, a lot of people are not aware that the administration is er, is arguing that the act be invalidated, um, and uh, that may may come up in the next six weeks. So that's another it's already coming up. Yeah, that's the centerpiece of the Democratic argument. Right. Um, so it's uh, it, it's 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 a jump ball. It's hard to tell. All right. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say just one more little uh, reason why we should want this nominee to go forward, uh, whoever uh, he, he, she rather is. Um, I actually think that there are some Republicans who know better, but will vote for Trump or would have voted for Trump just solely based on the court. And this will take that away. And so- Maybe there'll be some, you know, honesty on the part of Republicans and who've been claiming that the reason they vote for Trump is the judges, but the judges, as they always say, well, they wouldn't have that excuse anymore. Yeah. Um, well, they still would have that excuse because there's there are always more judges <laughs> at the lower courts and uh, and so forth. And, uh, and even on the Supreme Court. McConnell's boasting he's filled every vacancy. <laughs> <laughs> Vacancies do do come up as we saw. Well, all right. Let's uh, let's move on to the really cheerful news of this week, which is that the president won't say whether he will have uh, preside over a peaceful transition of power. <clears throat> this was yesterday. Um, a re- reporter for Playboy magazine, but who is also actually a um, contributor to the Bulwark, Brian Karam, asked the president. He said. He's explicitly, he said, win, lose, or draw in this election. Will you commit here today for a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Trump's response, we're going to have to see what happens. You know, I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots and the ballots are a disaster. Get rid of the ballots and you'll have a very, we'll have a very, there won't be a transfer, frankly, there'll be a continuation. Well, um, 
Is it hysterical to uh, respond with worry that the president uh, won't abide by, will attempt in some way to um, to impede the the proper functioning of the election, Damon Linker? I mean, the, it's not only this, of course. It's it's the fact that he has said multiple times that mail-in ballots are illegal, that they are fraudulent, that they are that they are a scam. And uh, people are concerned that there will be, of course, as we've discussed before in this podcast, there will be uh, a, a large um, in-person vote for Trump on election day, and then there will be a, a blue shift as the votes more, are counted more slowly uh, for Biden, and that Trump might say on election night, I won, and uh, send federal marshals in to uh, close down any recounts, a- any counts of further ballots. Well, I mean, I, I will, I do worry about all of this, but uh, my experience of watching Trump for all of this time uh, has led me to worry about one slight variation on the scenario you just sketched that's a little different, and I worry about that one a little bit more. Um, the the scenario you just sketched and that is in there's a a, a big uh, brand new um, cover story in the Atlantic by Barton Gelman that kind of sketches out uh, various ways that Trump might try to kind of you know seize power and institute a coup uh, by getting uh, you know electors in states to get appointed uh, independently from whatever the mail-in vote tally is showing. I think it's that gives, I think, uh, Trump more credit than he deserves at being able to act like an authoritarian. I think other than acting like one on Twitter, he's not very good at it when it comes to actually the rubber meeting the road. So I, I, I worry about that, uh, that path a little bit less than something else, which is that I worry that, uh, we're going to have the Bush v. Gore scenario uh, between uh, Election Day and then um, early December dissolve into total chaos in a way that makes Bush v. Gore look like child's play. I really, I'm really concerned that it's not that it's not going to be. I think that Trump wins on election night with the the, the ballots that were cast in person that day, and then it will clearly shift to Biden. What you're going to have are objections on objections on objections raised to how to count those mail-in ballots. You're going to have improperly filled out ballots. You're going to have illegible signatures. You're going to have lost ballots, found ballots, uh, mail sacks that show up unexpectedly in weird places and then b- debates about whether to count them and how to count them and judges are going to be brought in and the media is going to point out whether the judge was appointed by a Democrat or a Republican. And all what you're going to see or what I fear you're going to see is this one of the last institutions that we rely on in a democracy to be perceived as above the partisan fray as just trying to determine the fact of the matter, namely who actually won on November 3rd, that that will be impossible to determine if this scenario plays out. And I don't know where that goes, frankly. It obviously can be avoided if Biden wins in a genuine landslide where it is irrefutable. He wins every battleground state by a nice margin. In that case, Trump will be totally out of luck and there'll be nothing he can do. But I do worry that it tightens at the end and we end up with like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Texas, Florida, Arizona, all of North Carolina, all sort of within like two points. And then and then it's Bush v. Gore times 100. Uh, yeah. Uh, Bill, a few weeks ago, you were flagging um, one of the aspects of this issue when you noted that uh, uh, state legislatures have the power to um, to submit their own slate of electors if they think there's a problem with the way the vote has been counted. Um, in three swing states, uh, Michigan, 
Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, you have um, legislatures controlled by Republicans and Democratic governors. Um, are you worried about this? <laughs> Am I worried? Uh, I've I've spent you know since I since learning of the president's statement uh, yesterday in his press conference, I've spent one of the worst twenty four hours of my life. I am worried sick about American democracy. I mean, and, you know, and if you read as many of these expert uh, analyses and scenarios as I have, uh, the venues for worry and distress just keep on multiplying. Everything that Damon said is true. Uh, And I could spend the next hour piling additional scenario upon additional scenario. Uh, and uh, and my one of my fears is that if all of if if formally it does resemble Bush v. Gore uh, and the Supreme Court is called upon ultimately to resolve these controversies, that will just throw into even higher relief the consequences of the way recent, uh, you know, the way Merrick Garland was handled, and then again, uh, the way the latest opening has been handled. Uh, so I, you know, uh, I, I, I wish I could say something encouraging about this topic, but in fact, I would describe myself as almost frantic with worry about it. And let me tell you what would cheer me up. If the Senate majority leader were to make a clear, unequivocal statement in favor of the generic legitimacy of mail-in ballots, acknowledging that there can be particular problems and controversies, but directly contradicting the president on the question of whether mail-in ballots per se are an illegitimate font of fraud. I'm not holding my breath, but it sure would be nice to hear those words. Yes. Um, he did give a sort of anodyne statement about how- Very you know, anodyne. But, yeah, right? it was. Which I committed know. himself to nothing. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. and other he didn't mention ballot. He didn't mention mail-in ballots. He just said, oh, you know, the election will go forward. Actually, some people were a little alarmed that he said the, Nove- <laughs> the election will go forward November 3rd. And somebody said, well, wait a minute. You know, what about the counting of the ballots after November 3rd? And this is, he's, he's, he's setting us up. Well, anyway, let Linda, let me- let me um, bring you into this by by countering or pre- presenting an alternative to Damon's view, which I, I broadly share, but I'm just for the sake of argument, okay? Damon says, look, you know, Trump may have the soul of an authoritarian, but he's got the organizational skill of a three-year-old and uh, the attention span of a gnat, and therefore he's not really that scary. Um, but uh, of course I paraphrase it. Damon, you don't have to. I, 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 you don't have to abide by that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but let me let me just cite a few things that have been in the news lately that tend to suggest that this president, for all that, is using the levers of power in worrying ways already, encouraging the DHS not to report white nationalist threats. Um, leaning on an official in the uh, NSC to say that the Bolton book contained classified information when it didn't, um, threatens to overrule FDA guidelines on vaccines, um, slaps down the head of the CDC on mask wearing and vaccines, um, declares various cities or threatens to declare various cities in the United States anarchist jurisdictions um, and just most recently, and this isn't him doing it exactly, but it's the it's the government bending to his will, the CIA limiting the kinds of intelligence on Russia that it puts out uh, to its customers in the government. Um, those things don't suggest somebody who's a, a harmless old buffoon. Well, he is, I think, a, a buffoon, but he's not harmless. And we're acting as if the only person in this administration who has these authoritarian tendencies is Donald Trump. And that's just not true. I mean, we've got a, right. we've got an attorney general of the United States who is behaving 
so bizarrely uh, in his uh, most recent incarnation uh, as attorney general. I mean, he once had very high regard for Bill Barr, no longer. So Bill Barr is doing things that suggest Mm -hmm. he has those tendencies. Even within the White House, Stephen Miller, whom I think is vile, uh, nonetheless, has been very successful in getting his agenda accomplished uh, on the immigration area. And he's used the levers of power and and Trump's ability to issue executive orders or simply to ignore things um, like the refugee program, which I wrote about this week in the Bulwark. Um, I think that um, there are enough people who are authoritarian leaning, um, if not outright authoritarians themselves, within the administration at various levels that they could in fact do harm. And I don't, um, I don't simply uh, think that that the uh, article suggesting that there might. Uh, you know, be lawsuits um, against electors, or that there might, as Bill suggested, be alternative electors uh, presented, uh, is are, are fanciful. I think these things could, in fact, happen. And if we don't uh, understand that, if we don't understand that uh, this is war uh, in their minds, and they're going to win, and they're going to win in the old 1960s phrase, by any means necessary. All right. Um, we will, of course, have more to say about this uh, in the coming weeks, but uh, let us now turn to our final segment, something we want to highlight or lowlight. Uh Bill Galston, let's start with you this week. Well, apropos of uh, what we've just been talking about, uh, you know, one of the leaders of Third Way, uh, a moderate Democratic organization, uh, Matt Bennett, who's probably known to many of you, has prepared a 23-slide deck explaining in lay terms how all of the problems we've just been talking about for past for the past 15 minutes could actually work out in practice. Uh, I commend it to everybody. It was featured on Axios this morning. Okay. Uh, Linda. Well, you know, I don't usually read books like Bob Woodward's uh, Rage, but I decided to order it. And the other night, there wasn't anything on TV. So I thought, well, I'll take a look at it. Um, I started it. And within two nights, I had finished it. um, And I highly recommend it. You know, all of us have seen or heard the clips that have emerged about the virus. But the portrayal that Woodward um, is able to convey is one of a man who, as Woodward himself says in his final line, is totally unfit to be president. There is um, a portrayal here of a man who is deeply disturbed. Narcissistic doesn't begin to describe him, but also someone who has not any idea of what it means to be president of the United States. I mean, there are several times in his various interviews that Woodward uh, talks to Trump about what he he is doing in response to the uh, epidemic, pandemic. And at one point, I think uh, Woodward comes up with, these are the 14 things that, you know, might be being done. And how are you responding to each of these? And Trump simply has not a clue. And that cluelessness now has uh, resulted in 200,000 Americans dead. So I highly recommend the book. It is really well written. It's very entertaining. And I don't see how if you read this book, you can come away wanting to support Donald Trump. Okay. Damon. Well, I've I've plugged once before on the podcast uh, the writings of my uh, colleague at the week, Noah Millman. Um, I think he's a, a really um, powerful analyst of politics. Uh, his uh, column this week was uh, titled "The Democrats' Terrible Bluff on the Supreme Court." So, if you're interested in reading more on that theme, which we definitely spent some time on today, I, I highly recommend it. He really thinks through. 
while having some sympathy for the Democrats to, to begin to ponder things like packing the court, he thinks through not just the obvious point that, of course, the Republicans will then just pack it some more on the other side, but that a lot of Democrats seem to be going in for the claim right now that, yes, this will diminish the power of the court, but that's a good thing because the court is just too powerful. And that's really short-sighted. Democrats view the court as a bulwark of individual rights uh, on abortion, anti-discrimination, due process, voting rights, on all these things that they care about tremendously. It depends on the court having stature to be able to overturn uh, laws uh, made by states mostly. And if the court uh, ends up either having jurisdiction stripped or its authority ends up waning drastically as a result of these fights, uh, it, the result is going to be very short-sighted for the Democrats. So this is a good piece by Noah Millman thinking through issues like that. Great. <clears throat> Well, I'm going to return to an early tradition here at uh, Beg to Differ, and I'm going to cite an author that I don't usually agree with, but I do this week, and that is Jamel Bowie of the New York Times, um, whose column this week was titled, Facebook Has Been a Disaster for the World. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't normally like to go there. I think that uh, all new technologies bring, you know, they bring benefits and flaws and they're nothing is ever all good or all bad. But uh, Jamel Bowie makes a good case here that Facebook has been really, it's not sort of 50, 50. If you weigh it in the balance, it's more like 98 to 2% bad. And uh, he cites examples from all over the world. It destabilizes governments. It, uh, it, it spreads disinformation and it encourages conspiratorial thinking um, and so it's uh, worth worth contemplating. And with that, we will say goodbye for this week. We will return next week as we do every week. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>